Well, I think the best place to watch fireworks in Lancaster County is among the billions of people crammed into Longs Park the Sunday before July 4th. Uh, Overcrowded and hot, absolutely. Uh, But it's just not the same watching the fireworks from miles away. Just just not the same. I want to feel the explosions and have the ashes from the fireworks hit me. And, And if you've ever there, maybe you've experienced that if there's a slight breeze. But now I want you to think about a firework. Uh, you hear it shoot into the air, and there it goes. And, and you know what's coming, and you watch it rising higher and higher into the sky, and then all of a sudden, crack, and there is this burst of beautiful color that lights up the nighttime sky. Well, this, this is the image that John T. Rhodes uh, uses to describe God's covenant being fulfilled by Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Rhodes writes this, covenant is the theme that links the different books of the Bible to make them one united story, blazing through the Old Testament like a firework before exploding into full color in the coming of Christ. All right, and that's a great image. In in Genesis 3.15, the firework gets launched into the air. It's out. Okay, and then you watch the gospel and it rises higher and higher through the Old Testament. It rises in progressive clarity, building anticipation until you get to Matthew, where the gospel explodes in full color as Jesus Christ fulfills the covenant of grace. And it's all meant to thrill you, to thrill your heart. The genealogy in verses 1 through 17 is significant because it verifies that Jesus is God's promised Messiah and fulfillment of the covenant of grace and substantiates God's faithfulness in keeping all of his covenant promises. So if Jesus is indeed the promised son of David and appointed Christ, then we need to know the details of his birth because the details are critical in establishing his two natures his divine nature, and his human nature. When we hear in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, we should anticipate Matthew giving us essential details uh, that unveil the gospel, that, that show us more of the gospel. Why else would God give us the details of Jesus Christ's birth? His birth matters to God, and it matters to his people. Why? Because the conception and birth are inextricably linked to Christ's identity and his ability to save us from our sins. The details of Jesus Christ's birth are not trivial, they're essential. And yet, not everyone thinks so. Uh, Even some prominent pastors, authors, and speakers go out of their way to trivialize the divine conception and virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Time magazine named Rob Bell uh, one of the 100 most influential people in the world. In the world. And his influence on American Christianity is substantial. In his uh, first book titled Velvet Elvis, many Christians love the book, Bell compared doctrines of the Christian faith to springs on a trampoline and strongly implied that if a spring or doctrine like the virgin birth was removed from the Christian faith, one could keep jumping, could still love God, could still be a Christian. He was moving the divine conception and virgin birth of Jesus Christ from essential to trivial. 
Lutheran pastor Nadia Bowles-Weber does the same thing when she says this, quote, I happen to agree with Moltmann and Bart that affirming the medical accuracy of the virgin birth is not an element of belief required for having faith, end of quote. Now, we would expect that from theological liberals like Bell and Nadia Bowles-Weber. What about Andy Stanley? Andy Stanley is one of the most famous and influential evangelical pastors in America. The impact of his thinking and his theology and his leadership is far and wide. His church averages 30,000 every Sunday, second largest in America. In his message uh, on December 4th in 2016, Andy Stanley preached uh, this to tens of thousands of people. Listen very carefully. If somebody can predict their own death and their own resurrection... I'm not all that concerned about how they got into the world because the whole resurrection thing is so amazing. Now, that's pretty shocking for an evangelical pastor to say that he's not all that interested about the virgin birth and, and, and divine conception of Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to say this, quote, in fact, you should know this, Christianity doesn't hinge on the truth or even the stories around the birth of Jesus, it really hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Now think about that statement. Christianity doesn't hinge on the truth or even the stories around the birth of Jesus. Annie Stanley, while not outright rejecting them, does seem to move the divine conception and virgin birth of Jesus from essential doctrine to trivial doctrine as if they are not central to the gospel. Brothers and sisters, the details of Jesus Christ's birth are not trivial. In any sense, they are essential. They are indispensable to the gospel. Without the divine conception and virgin birth of Jesus, we have no gospel. We have no meaningful cross and resurrection. We have no savior and we have no salvation. So here's my main point. The first part of it is a statement. The second part of it is a plea. Here it is. There is no gospel without the divine conception and the virgin birth. So believe them with all of your heart. Believe them with all of your heart. Treasure them and show yourself thankful for God's provision in Christ. My statement, there is no gospel apart from the divine conception and virgin birth of Jesus Christ. My plea, believe these two essential doctrines with all of your heart. Treasure these truths and then show yourself thankful for God's provision of Christ. So let me, let me explain for you why this matters. First, the divine conception and virgin birth of Jesus Christ. What did God promise in Genesis 3.15? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The promised Savior must be born of a woman. And according to the Davidic covenant and the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, the promised Savior must also be God's son, Emmanuel, God with us. How on earth does that work? I mean, we need some details. We need to understand how that, that works, how to make sense of that. Verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Matthew's going to explain 
how that works. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Mary was betrothed to Joseph, a wonderful thing as they anticipated marriage, but they were more than engaged here. Sometimes we think, well, it's kind of like engagement. It's different. Um, One study note explained, the custom of betrothal was different from engagement in modern society. Customarily, the parents of a young man chose a young woman to be engaged to their son. A second stage of betrothal involved official arrangements and a prenuptial agreement before witnesses, which was a legally binding contract and could be broken only by a formal process of divorce. Betrothed partners were referred to as husband and wife, though they were not yet considered to be married, and having sexual relations during that period was considered immoral. End of quote. So Mary and Joseph had not officially completed their marriage or consummated their marriage with sexual intercourse, but they were bound by law. Verse 18 says, before they came together, verse 25 confirms it, Joseph knew her not until she had given birth. So at this point, Mary was still living with her parents and had not yet joined uh, Joseph in his own home uh, as his wife, uh, which would be the final step of marriage, and they had not, clearly, they had not consummated their marriage at this point with sexual intercourse. That's indispensable to the gospel, indispensable. Verse 18 again, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The angel repeats the same thing in verse 20, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then Matthew connects this miraculous conception with Isaiah 7, 14, where God promised this, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Uh, virgins don't have sons. They have sex and then sons. That's how this works. This was a conception like none other. This was unique. This was amazing. In Luke 1, when Mary asked the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel described for her in gracious terms exactly how it was going to be. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, love this part, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. That's an essential detail to the gospel. And I want you to understand why. Consider for a moment the covenant promise of Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Listen closely. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for, for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely. And shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Brothers and sisters, God promised a righteous branch. A wise, just, and righteous king who would save God's people. And he would be called what? The Lord is our righteousness. Now follow me, the gospel hinges on the perfect righteousness of the divine and human child. 
So the details of how all of that came to be are essential to the gospel because if the promised child had a biological father, he is a sinner like you and me. And if he is a sinner, he cannot save us from our sins and the gospel collapses and we all perish in our sins. Heidelberg Catechism question 16 rightly asked the question, why must he be a true and righteous man? Answer. He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Consider that. One who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. What good is a sinful Savior? He can't save us from our sins. Saints, the details of Christ's birth are not trivial. They are essential. A gospel without, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, is no gospel at all. Heidelberg Catechism, question 17, asks, why must he at the same time be true God? Answer, he must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Okay, if Jesus is not true and righteous man, he cannot pay for our sins. If Jesus is not at the same time true God, He cannot bear the burden of God's wrath for us. He cannot remove God's wrath from us. He cannot restore to us righteousness and life. A gospel without conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary is no gospel at all. Heidelberg question 35 asks, what do you confess when you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary? Now we we recite the Apostles' Creed here once a month. And we need to understand what we're confessing. We we need to understand the benefit, the essentiality of what we're confessing. The Heidelberg answer is like this. The eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. Through the working of the Holy Spirit, thus... He is also the true seed of David. And like his brothers, in every respect, he is like us in every, whatever, can't talk, whatever that was supposed to be, in every respect, yet without sin. That makes all the difference. Dr. William Hendrickson, he essentially says the same thing, quote, if Christ had been the son of Joseph and Mary by ordinary generation, Would he not have been a human person and as such a sharer in Adam's guilt? Hence a sinner unable to save himself, hence also unable to rescue others from sin? In order to save us, the Redeemer must, in one person, be both God and man, sinless man, Hendrickson says. And then he adds, the doctrine of the virgin birth satisfies both of these requirements, end of quote. The details of The divine conception and virgin birth of Jesus Christ are not trivial. They are essential to the gospel. And they are a blessing. They 
They give us comfort and they give us assurance and an incredible benefit, which Heidelberg question 36 explains. It asks, what benefit? In other words, what difference does this make to you and me? What benefit do you receive, the people of God now, from the holy conception and birth of Christ? That is perfect for this sermon. I love it. You need to understand how conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, benefits you as a believer, and it does. It does. The Heidelberg explains the benefit like this. He is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. The divine conception and virgin birth of Jesus Christ are essential and beneficial because, brothers and sisters, we have a mediator. We have an advocate. We have an intercessor who covers our sin and grants his righteousness to us so that God will accept us, so that God will love us forever. Healthy theology gives you what sloppy theology can't. Deep comfort, assurance, intimacy with God, gratitude, joy, perseverance, and so many other things. Next, the divinely revealed command of the Lord. How do you think Joseph responded when he heard his betrothed wife Mary was pregnant? It wasn't his child. He logically concluded, like every other husband would conclude, that Mary slept with another man. I would imagine that Joseph wept. Under Mosaic law, if a betrothed woman slept with a man other than her husband, she and the man were to be stoned. Yet verse 19 says this, and her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Considering the pain and the heartbreak of sexual betrayal, that's amazing. Amazing. Joseph was just. He loved God's good law. Marriage was sacred to Joseph, and he wouldn't ever consider overlooking egregious sin like this. He, he rightly sought divorce from his betrothed. Yet Joseph was also compassionate. He didn't want to shame Mary. He loved Mary. Therefore, a discreet and a quiet divorce would protect Mary. So the conclusion is Joseph loved God. He loved God. He was a, a man with great confidence in the promises of God. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, Joseph had a lot on his mind. Behold, and I want you to stop there. Behold is important. Uh, Matthew used behold more than any other New Testament writer. In verses 20 and 23, he uses it. Behold, it alerts us to something important that's coming afterwards. We, he's setting us up to make sure we get what follows. So behold is important. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew alerts us to a messenger, an angel, sent from God to deliver divine truth, divine grace, divine favor. That's huge. That's important. 
uh, God was bestowing gospel grace. The angelic messenger said, jo- uh, Joseph, son of David. Now, why did he say that? Why is he talking in those terms? The angel was highlighting Joseph's royal blood in order to direct Joseph back to God's covenant promise of Christ and his everlasting kingdom. John Calvin noted this. The predictions of the prophets were, in effect, brought forward by the angel to prepare the mind of Joseph to receive the present favor. That's good. God was giving Joseph gospel grace. Verse 24 confirms that God commanded Joseph to take Mary and her child into his home as his own wife and as his own child. So the child, get this, would be an adopted heir to the throne of David by adoption. If you're you're adopted, we love you. Jesus was adopted. Adoption is key to the gospel, not a trivial detail, an essential detail. God's supernatural special revelation assured Joseph that his beloved bride-to-be was pure, was pure and godly. She had saved herself for him, and it was right, and it was good for them to be married. No shame, no guilt, no hesitation, no fear of compromised integrity, but only God's gracious provision of a wife, a beautiful wife, and a savior son. God was commanding Joseph to do what Joseph wanted to do. That's what he wanted to do, take Mary as his wife. God was giving Joseph more favor, more grace than he ever imagined. The Christ would grow up in his home. The Christ would be his adopted son. Folks, this is the covenant of grace exploding in full color for Joseph and for you and for me, for our benefit. Next point, the gospel in the details of the birth of Christ. The gospel in the details of the birth of Christ. If verse 21 is not a beautiful and colorful explosion of the gospel, I don't know what is. Uh, This is the clearest and fullest the gospel has been in the historic progression of the redemption story. The angel continued, verse verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That's gospel. God preached gospel to Joseph through a messenger from the womb of the virgin Mary would come the promised serpent-slaying seed, son, savior, and sovereign, who would fulfill God's covenant of grace for the eternal benefit of his people. Now, many churchgoers today are confused about the gospel. Confused. Many churchgoers seem to think Jesus came to bring health or wealth, or economic growth, or poverty alleviation, or social justice, or racial reconciliation, or environmental redemption, or political revolution, or whatever. And though these may be effects of the gospel, they are not the gospel. They are not the gospel. The gospel is simple. The gospel is clear. He will save his people from their sins. That's the gospel. Notice three things there. Number one, Jesus will save. Jesus does not make salvation possible, as many Christians believe. He makes salvation actual. He is a successful Savior. 
Number two, Jesus will save his people. God gave Jesus an elect people to save, and Jesus saves every single one of them. He loses none. That's John 6, John 10, John 17, John 18. Number three, Jesus will save his people, get this now, from their sins. Sins, iniquities, transgressions, misdeeds, broken commandments, broken covenants. John Calvin explained it with great eloquence, as he often does. He said, hence, too, we learn in what way or manner Christ saves. He delivers us from sins. This deliverance consists of two parts. Having made a complete atonement, he brings us a free pardon, which delivers us from condemnation to death, and reconciles us to God. Free pardon, reconciliation. Calvin continued, again, by the sanctifying influences of his spirit, he frees us from the tyranny of Satan, that should sound familiar, that we may live unto righteousness. Christ is not truly acknowledged as a Savior till, on the one hand, we learn to receive a free pardon of our sins and know that we are accounted righteous before God because we are free from guilt until, on the other hand, we ask from him the spirit of righteousness and holiness having no confidence whatever in our own works or power. No confidence in you, all confidence in him. Jesus actually and fully saves his people from the despotism of Satan and by his Holy Spirit causes them by his tremendous and sovereign and saving and glorious grace to live free to love and serve God and others in righteousness, in his righteousness. Friends, Jesus is irrelevant if we are all good people. The only way the person and work of Jesus Christ makes any sense and the only way that he is actually good news for us is if we are dead and condemned in our sin and guilt without him. It shouldn't be hard to understand why faithful churches talk about God's law and sin a lot. The law and sin are the context in which Christ shines the brightest as Savior and as Lord where he is treasured the most as such. When Jesus Christ is preached without the law and without a mature doctrine of sin, in time, people sitting under that preaching, Sunday after Sunday, forget why Jesus Christ is good news, and in time, they trivialize him into irrelevance. It is a robust doctrine of sin alongside of a clearly articulated gospel that inflames the heart and soul for Jesus Christ which then motivates us to gratitude. His name is Jesus because I promise you he will save his people from their sins. Entailing their justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. We make it. We make it because he promised that takes a load off, does it not? Is it your performance? No, it's his. So he ensures that it gets done. He promised it has to be true. We have to believe it. 
And, and, and how do we respond to that? Oh, thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Help me to live in a way that reflects this gratitude. It's just not that hard to understand. Hard to do. Oh, how we need the Spirit. Next point. The covenant of redemption fulfilled in the details of the birth of Christ. Look at verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Before the world began, God had a good plan. And all that we've ever seen from God is him working out his good plan. And nothing, absolutely nothing, can thwart his good plan. If the birth of Jesus Christ fulfilled Isaiah's ancient prophecy, not only is that far from trivial, but it shows that God has a sovereign and a redemptive plan. In eternity, God decreed the details of Christ's birth, details indispensable to the gospel and details that show for us the glory and grandeur of God. Back in verse 18, Matthew said, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And now here in verse 22, he says, all this took place to fulfill. Folks, the details authenticate that Jesus Christ is indeed Emmanuel or God with us. Jesus Christ is called Emmanuel because he is the son of God in human flesh, in the line of David as the fulfillment of God's glorious and gracious covenant of redemption. All this took place to fulfill is the beginning of the explosion of the beauty and the power and the effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, there is no gospel without the divine conception and the virgin birth of Jesus. The cross and resurrection are emptied completely of their effect without them. Saints, the gospel is infinitely beautiful. And so when we hear it, it's got to do something in us. It has to move you or else I don't think you get it. It's got to move you. So, so what, what should the response be? The response of gratitude to the details of the birth of Christ. I want you to see something profound in the way that Joseph responded to God's grace in this situation. Joseph's response to God's favor tells us something about how we should respond to the gospel. Verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Don't miss that. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph responded to God's grace and favor with faith-filled obedience He heard the gospel from the angel. He believed it to the point of radical obedience. God sent his own son to Joseph's betrothed wife to save him from his sins. Joseph's act of of then taking Mary as his wife, abstaining from sex with his new bride until Jesus was born, and naming the child Jesus was all evidence that Joseph received the gospel with true faith and express gratitude by obeying God's will. Scholar Leon Morris noted that, quote, by giving the name, Joseph officially accepted the child. His naming of the child means that he adopted him legally. That's loaded with significance. 
Calvin said, the dream must have carried some mark of divinity which did not allow his mind to hesitate. Next followed the effect of faith. Having learned the will of God, he instantly prepared himself to obey. Joseph's obedience to God's command demonstrated his true faith in God and thankfulness for God's grace and God's favor in his life. He could have woken up from his nap and said, man, this is whacked out. I did not sign up for this. Now my son, I'm not going to worry about this. I'm done. Divorce, mm mm-hmm. No, Joseph was a just man. A just man, a compassionate man, a man of faith who believed God's gospel covenant promises and who obeyed God's command in a wonderful response of gratitude. God gave Joseph grace, grace. God preached the gospel to Joseph. How did he respond? Thankful obedience. I will do what you call me to do, God, because you are a good God and I am confident in your gospel covenant promises. Joseph's not wondering around, who's David? And what, son of David, I don't know what he's saying. No, he knew exactly what he was saying. This was, a, this was an amazing moment. And, and Joseph is like, done. I'm doing what you want me to do, God. When you have true faith, true faith and gratitude, what God wants you to do is what you want to do. I love what Dr. Daniel Doriani wrote about this. He said, His submission to God was as powerful and complete as that of Mary, who also offered herself as the servant of the Lord. Joseph refused to be led by shame or anger. He laid aside the plausible plan of divorce and took Mary as his wife. What a tender picture of living faith. Mary and Joseph leaned, uh, listened to God. They silenced their emotions of fear and shame and obeyed the Lord. Why? Because they understood that God is with his people to save. Because they were willing to listen to the Lord. Whatever people might think or say, they show us how to listen and how to obey the voice of God rather than our impulses. Isn't that good? That's good. They show us how to listen and how to obey the voice of God rather than our impulses. What did Joseph do with the divine conception and virgin birth? Trivialize it? Say that he wasn't too concerned about it? No, he denied his impulses and believed them. He believed God's gracious promise. He believed God's word. He believed the promised Savior was coming into the world. At that moment, he received the gospel Revealed to him by grace through faith and he responded with gratitude. But not just this static feeling of gratitude, a compulsion that led him to obey God, to do the will of God. How are you responding to the gospel that has been revealed to you? How are you responding? See, God has condescended to each one of us here today, supernaturally revealing Christ to us. If you're a believer, supernaturally seeing Christ in his word. God has been gracious to each and every one of you, even if you're an unbeliever here today. God has been gracious to you to condescend, to speak to you gospel truth through the preaching of his word. 
Are you awake and doing the will of God? Are you accepting as true all that God revealed about Christ in His Word? Are you putting a firm confidence in all of the gospel for your forgiveness of sins, for your righteousness, for your salvation? Are you treasuring the divine conception and the virgin birth of Jesus Christ as essential parts of the gospel for you? As, as things that God has given you to just stamp on it, it, your sins are actually forgiven. I'm serious about this. Like, that's what God is communicating. Are, are you showing yourself thankful for God's provision of Christ by responding in faith-filled obedience to God's will as Joseph did? Joseph didn't hesitate to respond to the gospel with obedience to God's command. As Calvin said, having learned the will of God, he instantly prepared himself to obey. Is that what you're doing in response to the gospel? Instantly preparing to obey God at all costs. Are you with me that we have some room to grow here? I'm feeling that. (laughs) Now, I hope when the time comes, my family is in Long's Park on June 30th, on that Sunday, to see those fireworks. And fireworks, in my experience, as I've been with people watching them, often move people to be like, ooh, or, or like, ah, I like the color of that one, or did you see that one? No, I was looking at the child running away, you know. I missed it. It was, it was the best one I've ever seen in my life. Well, that ruins Long's Park. Get in the car, we're leaving. <laughs> beating everyone out because you sit in traffic for seven days afterwards. But I I still hope to be there. Don't get me wrong. I still hope to be there. And I'm wondering, why do people respond that way? Ooh, ah, did you see that one? And I think it's because the, the thrill of the explosion and the color, the brilliant color, it moves people to express something. I gotta say something about that last one. The divine conception and virgin birth are not trivial details, but essential details meant, meant to do this, meant to move you to wonder and amazement and excitement and thrill at the glory of God, and then meant to move you to obey God because that's what you want to do. That's that's where we're going here. That's the whole thing. And so... How then, what's my plea to you? It's, it's really quite simple. How should you respond to all of this, to the whole gospel? It's simple. Believe the gospel. Believe all of it. Cherish all of it. Love all of it. Treasure those details of the gospel. And then, and then folks, show yourselves thankful for God's provision of Christ by doing this, by walking very carefully by the Spirit in newness of life. Show that you're grateful. Show that you're grateful by how you live in obedience to God's will.